Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Putting the super in moto since 2015. Super in moto. Putting the super in moto. I think you have to say super super and super moto. Is that? No. Yeah, because you just said super in moto. There's no super in moto. There is no super There's super in super moto. Fuck. Damn it. Ah, nuts. (laughs) It's been a long day. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And I'm going to blame that one on dyslexia. (laughs) Dyslexia? Uh, So, Quentin... The big news today before uh, before we started recording the show was that in the carb filings over the weekend, it came out that Ducati has what looks like two new Scrambler models coming to the United States. Uh, carb, for those who don't know, is the California Air Resources Board. It's basically the EPA of California. They have tighter, more stringent emission standards which is why we have like 49 state model bikes or at least used to and now i think all bikes are pretty much 50 state bikes aren't they? for the most part yeah. yeah um but carb is kind of notorious because of this kind of weird bureaucracy of outing new machines and oems that aren't careful about um setting release dates for when their emission documents become public can sometimes get caught with their pants down and and the same can be said of some oems are very savvy about this and use this as a way of leaking information out, as teasing information out in a way that sure. feels maybe, let's say, more genuine than like, oh, it's a spy photo right outside of our factory. How weird that a photographer was there at the right time on the yeah. right day. And yeah. the the test rider's giving him thumbs up, and that's cool. And then here's a picture of him riding on the back of the bike. And yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting how the the marketing of it all works. But that aside... Interesting to see that Ducati, at least, so I should say, in the documents, there is a Scrambler DS and there's a Scrambler CR in addition to what's already been in the carb documents before. And then there's like this weird thing with like a slash or a a T version, but uh, I can't quite figure out what that is, but we've seen that in the past in Ducati Scrambler carb filing. So I'm just, I have no idea what it is. Maybe a, a listener does, but I see that as more of a red herring i don't think it's four new bikes i think it's two new bikes and there might be some discernible difference sure. that carb cares about that no one else seems to care about that makes them having to have a separate listening form so the ds being dual sport that would be the the smart man's guess right yeah because not dual spark you saw that it's an 800 cc engine is that They're right all 803 cc yeah. engines and i want to say there was a weight difference on one of the models wait but the way carb does weight is is weird it's not just like hey this is the bike on a scale it's an inertial mass kind of thing and it's very much it's a weird little animal it's hard to to read into it too much we should figure out what the hell that is because i I would want to know why why is there a weird way to do weight right we should dig into that maybe because you can't game it as well i don't know i really don't know there's there's gotta be a um some method to the madness in fact I think I got a guy. I think we got a guy at Carb we could talk to about that. Good. Otherwise, I was going to say the listenership should, uh, it might be scary, but hey, hey, anybody know anybody that would uh, know what's going on at Carb? Carb it up. We got to get our carbs. Carbonite. 
All right, so carb. Everybody gets their carbs. Uh, we got carb information, and uh, we um, know that this, there's scramblers, multiple different scramblers coming out. That everybody assumed it was just going to be bigger scramblers, straight up. That's what I've been hearing for a long time. Is they've had the I'm going to call it an 1100 cc engine. It's what 1087. Yeah, whatever the... It's a weird little displacement. Whatever the last iteration of the 1100 yeah. Evo, yep. Yeah, so they got the 1100 lump. It's been around. I've definitely had people intimate to me that, or signal to me that that engine's still here. We should make use of it. It could totally fit in the lineup. And that kind of made sense with maybe an Enduro model because 100 horsepower seems to be kind of the magic number when it comes to maximum horsepower for off-road. Um, and that's about what those those engines make. So there's there's an argument to be made there. Turns out maybe not the case. Looks like it'll be an 803cc bike after all. Assuming that what we've been seeing in spy photos is what this is, and yeah. it does in fact turn out to be a dual sport machine. But I think we're both kind of sitting here nodding our heads that that's yeah. the case. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the other one could be. Well, CR to me means cafe racer. And that's another one of those things where it's I've had people in the Ducati realm kind of signal like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna build this line out. We're gonna build this brand out, this sub brand. Just because it's called Scrambler doesn't mean all the bikes have to be Scrambler-esque. It's kind of more of Ducati's heritage line, which would be like an answer to what like Triumph has done with the Bonneville and Thruxton and some of its other models where there's like this kind of heritage line and then there's the more modern sport bikes and things like that. That's what the Ducati Scrambler brand is feeling like to me. So you could make a good argument that it's a cafe racer, but we'll see. Well, the, the other ones that are existing, you had the Urban Enduro, which just looked the part, but didn't really do anything extra other than, you know, other than, you know, the, the standard uh, Scrambler Icon, which is the base model, the standard model, the, the uh, uh, Urban Enduro had higher fender, a, a guard on the light, but didn't have better suspension, didn't have more ground clearance, had a high pipe, whatever. Well, there's different, like, that's always been like kind of like the weird thing for me with the Scramble Line. It's like, it's four bikes that are basically the same, but you've just kind of made some different aesthetic choices to them. Yep. And the full throttle was going to be the Cafe Racer one. And it is, is kind of, but uh. not really. That's the hard time. That's the hard thing I have with with the Icon, the Classic, and the full throttle. I don't really see a big difference between them. I don't see enough of a distinction. I'd be curious to see what the breakdown is in sales across the yeah, it would the be. four models and now the five models. But for me, it was always like kind of like the roadie bikes, and then there's the Urban Enduro, which is kind of just I'm gonna say poser. I don't mean it like in a negative way, but it's not like a bike you're really gonna go off roading with. It's not like this is the more scrambly scrambler. It's just like, eh, <laughs> scrambly. They just kind of put a hat on today, you know. It's just kind of. I think the scrambler needs a needs a mascot. It needs to be scrambly scrambler. Scrambly the scrambler. <laughs> <laughs> Look like bib with knobs. <laughs> We'll run, we'll run that past Bologna. We'll see how it sticks. <laughs> scrambling. You got to have scrambling scrambler. You know, they're just getting back from like vacation. I can just see them like listening to the pops like the scrambly scrambler. What do we think about this? This this idea is shit. No, it's shit. Okay. Fuck that guy. <laughs> That's a really interesting Italian That's accent. really weird. I don't know. I don't really. <laughs> from Bepos? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if if they whatever's coming out, I I I I, do I am I really that excited? I don't know. I'm not. I think you'd be excited about the enduro version. I could see you getting into that. Yeah, possibly. 
I'm if po- it's done right. That's that's what I have to have faith for. Right. Is will it be done right? And that's I'm 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 optimistic for some reason. I think the spy photos kind of look good to me, and I'm I'm hoping that Ducati is seeing that they can they can kind of foray into this off-road dual sport enduro realm and be successful. I think the the Multistrada 1200 Enduro is a really good bike. I think it's the best uh, 19-inch front wheel yep. adventure tour on the market right now. Yep. Um, you know, I would love to see them make a 21-inch wheel version. I'd love to see them get the Scrambler to be a real Scrambler, like something that that's no excuses. You're going to go bop down some mild trails and 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 ripping and tearing. Yeah, I want to see them race Baja with one. Like, if you're going to be serious, take your heritage, your freaking post-heritage, and look at the Kajiva Explorer, the Lucky Strike Explorer. That was a legit thing. A Baja, or sorry, Dakar-winning machine. Ducati has that. The, the bike, that one, is in their museum. In the museum, yeah. It, that And it's an amazing piece of equipment back when the Dakar was legit big bikes going from... What was it? Paris, Paris to Dakar. Dakar <laughs> no. um, legitimately, not um, Lima, Peru to Santiago, Chile, Paris to Dakar, right? I don't get, I mean, I, I get the point you're making. I don't get shitty about the, the Dakar route. Uh, I don't think I, you're, I, I mean, you're not going to change the name when you have such a historic race. It sucks that the sedan is a nightmare right now. Yeah, sure. I totally get why they're not doing no, it. No, yeah, totally. I know. Not I'm, that like, South America's got its stuff completely together, but it's better. You're not going to get sh- well. I was about to say you're not going to get shot, and then I just remembered like a great story uh, about one of the Baja guys almost getting shot. So you know, it can it's happen anywhere. But let's just say Algeria and Sudan are a little bit gnarlier than yeah, yeah. All right, so if if they did that, I'd be pretty stoked because then there could be a potential for a legitimate um, machine that proves out. That would be the only way Ducati's going to prove itself. You can make this uh, enduro. The most bitchin' enduro in the world, the uh, the Multistrada, but there's not enough Beamer people out there that are taking it seriously because uh, Ducati has been making the Multistrada for years and it's never been legit. So they just look at it. They don't well, not really... legit in the globe trotter sort sort of way. Right. I would still say it's been pretty legit in the adventure sport realm. Yeah, sure. It's helped define that category, really. It's, absolutely, but it's going to take something long way around or long way down, yeah, uh, ish to. To get these people who are uh, they, they like need to be showing up to a flame towards yeah. the B, the BMW GS, unfortunately, um, I, I think unjustified. Uh, then then that's that's going to be tough to get them to. Go they to need to be at like every biker adventure rally, overland, yeah. yep. rawhide thing in the U.S. and, yep. and the, their counterparts abroad. But with that said, even KTM hasn't got a stronghold on it, even though it's a way more legitimate off-road bike. But that's the thing, is that because it is more legitimate, some of the, the, the more legitimate people ride those, and they don't feel that they need to espouse that everywhere, if that's the right word, espouse. Is that is that the right yeah, word? Yeah, sure. We'll make okay. it. We'll, it. If I can make up words, you can make up words. I'm totally going to I think that's that. a word. Though. I think it's a word, too. But the question is, is it ex-spouse or espouse? Ex-specially? Expousally. Expousally. I'm expousalizing right now. <laughs> Expousalized very well. Our elocution is on fleek. <laughs> So uh, that that's what that would take, and the same thing goes with the scrambler that's legit. And and I I this is right up my alley. Truly, the light 
lightweight, simple, like I'm an XR650L owner, air-cooled, single cylinder, that appeals to me, simple, right? So if we had air-cooled 800cc, great horsepower, probably good weight. Um, 75 horsepower at the crank, 412, 413 wet. Sure, sure. That's a little... Little poorly, but well, not that bad. And anyway, good good bones. Whereas a hyperstrata, like you have, or hypermotard, that that to make it off road, you can do it, but eh, I don't know. Water cooled and a lot of shit going on. And if they make this thing single throttle body like the other one, uh, again, simpler. Uh, I like that. I like the simplicity, the bare bones. All, all you have is ABS and maybe a couple riding modes. You don't have to worry about too much fancy shit on it. Um, it's probably fly by wire but maybe not and that would be good um, so I, I, i'd be excited by that go and play on it well i think if you have to have riding modes you probably have to have fly by wire you probably they kind of come part and parcel i guess you're right yeah absolutely so that would be the thing so maybe not could be uh, cool i definitely i definitely give it the benefit of the doubt until i saw it would i would i have less of a oh yeah of an easement easement i have a i have a more difficult time giving credence to the cafe racing model Cafe Racer at this stage is or at least a, what I assume is a Cafe Racer. Yeah, if it is, is a beaten dead horse, right? Well, that's and that's what I kind of brought up in the story, and that's what I wanted to use. You know, we're we're we are moth to a flame for any Ducati story. I will. Yep, I will admit we own it. But but I wanted to use this story as a jumping off point into a larger discussion because it's. I do think that we are, we've hit the apogee of yep. the uh, of the Cafe Racer. Thing in the industry, and I feel, and I even, I said this in the article. I feel like the zeitgeist of of the post authentic movement is is leaving us now. We're seeing the downward trend, uh, the downward slope of this cafe racer scrambler. Fad. It's a fad. It's it's an aesthetic. It's an aesthetic. It's been around in the industry for a long time, but it's just recently gotten glommed onto. And that's obviously been a big thing in the industry, and it's and it's been a big thing in the industry because we're it's what attracted thirty five year olds and younger into the brands, and that's a huge thing for for the motorcycle OEMs right now because they're all scared shitless on how they're going to sell bikes to anyone under fifty, and so of course they're all we're seeing all the manufacturers get on this train and having to come out with cafe racer models and scrambler models and heritage models and lifestyle accessories and you know you know you've jumped the shark when you when you sell like a uh, an oem branded picnic uh blanket yeah or a toaster the ktm toaster i think they just did that to fuck with people you would hope so but it's still a cute <laughs> little toaster orange uh i and i'm i i don't know what man i've been around it for watching it for a while I, the cafe racers on the from the ducati side when they made the Sport Classics, it was 2003, man, and started selling them not long after that, and they they were initially hot, and then they tapered off so badly that everybody that was involved just looked at them as pariahs and said, eh. Then Tron comes out, re, re-ups the interest, and then because Ducati, because Ducati never made them or had ceased to make them, they were hot as shit, and they have been since then. I remember the first time I, I saw a new style cafe racer was... 2007, uh, 2008 at, uh, Moto says one of the welders was, uh, helping, uh, <clears throat> Tor Drake, the guy that puts on the one show 
build a XR650L based cafe racer. I remember looking at it thinking, what is this fucking hunk of shit, right? It was just gawky and weird looking and didn't make any sense, but and that was in the beginning. And once he was done, I was like, Man, all right, I get, I get the aesthetic. It's a simple uh, single cylinder trying to make it from dirt to road and you know make it a cafe racer. And this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Turns out there were all kinds of them out by that time. And there was a lot of people in... Uh, 2008, 2007 to 8, 9 that were building CB, you name them. CB oh, man. 500s and 400s and whatever. We've gone through every permutation you can possibly go through with the Honda CB class of bikes. Like that has been, I feel like that has been completely explored by yep. the custom motorcycle market. Yep. And they were hot <clears throat> at that time. That was the early adopters and the, and that was, these are the people that are super uber cool and, and, uh, the tour who puts on the one show is one of those people. He, he gets what's hot and he, he blazes trails. He starts trends. So the one show really was a big deal because of that. The bikes that were in the one show in that first year, which I, I don't know, it might've been 2009, maybe 10. I can't remember. Um, were all fascinating local Portland bikes. <clears throat> and I think that actually helped feed the, the fad that was going on. But it didn't take much longer before that started to disappear here because everybody here had already done it. They'd built the things, and there was a try to get in the choppers. And uh, most recently, there's been a, a try to get into dirt bikes. Uh, and that that's the new hip thing is to get into older dirt bikes um, with a few people around here. Is that nationwide yet? Probably not. But you and I were talking about the 80s and how it's starting to – you're starting to see some 80s creep into bikes that are hot yeah that 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 was my comment before the show you know it's been interesting to watch for me great bellwethers for for this part of the industry are like um bike exif uh, chris Hunter's site uh pipe burn um cafe racer triple x you know and then there's obviously a a multitude of kind of social media instagram famous accounts that are out there that just you know soak this segment up like a sponge but it's been interesting to watch kind of not only their prominence and their traffic's change over the last well 24 months maybe yeah and, and see the kind of trends and like see the kind of bikes that they're featuring and they're picking up on and you can definitely see this movement away from cafe racers i almost never see a cafe well i almost never see a scrambler anymore but you see a couple cafe racers but that's really diminished now we're starting to see and I, I do think you're right to an extent like the 1970s dirt bikes like kind of like the maybe even like 1960s like that steve mcqueen husqvarna enduro kind of aesthetic um yeah but it, it's interesting to see like that seems to be something that people are glomming onto. but for me it's been more about seeing kind of 1980s japanese Sport bike slash street standards kind of coming into prominence and being the base for interesting new kind of custom works. Like they're not necessarily trying to replicate like the 1980s aesthetic, but it's more just like, hey, 1980s bikes are abundant and cheap and different, like different in the sense that like no one's really doing anything with them except junking them or riding them into the ground because they have like two nickels to, to rub together. Sure. And that makes total sense when you think about it. Of course, you're going to gravitate to what's cheap in the market, and that's what you're going to use to 
to build your art off of because everyone's kind of doing this on a budget. You can't afford to make every bike a, a, a custom Panigale or a custom KTM eleven ninety adventure when they're like twenty grand a pop. Yeah, sure. You know, starting off the off the bat, and then you're going to dump what like another twenty grand into them. Give me a break. Now, for a while, also there's been a Harley thing. You'll see um, a lot of the insta famous people, especially on the on the uh, female side, with Sportsters, and you know, it's. I, I think there's a backlash on that because most people ride them and realize how horrible they are. Really, they're just not good motorcycles. They're not. They make make the right sounds, and they can get you down the road. But compared to anything else with good suspension and good brakes, better fuel mileage, better fuel range, more comfortable. Right. So that that driver of aesthetic, like the cool. Um, I can't remember the movie. It's gonna kill me. Um, Dennis Hopper. Um, oh, uh, Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Oh my gosh! Wow. Um, not enough dew. Sorry. Yeah, you're not drinking enough dew. I know. I, I, get up, I get off just that water. water over here. It sucks, man. <laughs> so easy rider style, you know, evocative of the seventies, free, freedom, man. Just want to be free to do what I want. Right. And that, that I can see a lot of people getting into that right now. Well, there's, I mean, I think there's a couple things you hit on there. Like, I think it's, it's interesting that you bring up women on sportsters, to their credit, Harley Davidson is one of the few brands that's making like an effort to reach out to female riders. And you know, when you've seen in the industry that uh, the percentages of, of female riders has grown over the, uh, at least in the US, has grown over the last five years considerably. But I think that is 100% due to the fact that Harley Davidson is half this industry and Harley Davidson's doing all the heavy lifting on that. And they're seeing that same that same track in, in rise in female riders as, as the rest of the industry is. And I don't think there's that many brands that can quite lay claim to that. And so if it gets people on bikes, I'm I'm fine with it. I think I think it's still kind of a part of the selling cool thing, but then again, what motorcycle isn't selling cool on some level to its prospective owner? six fifties. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like you're really good at what you do man but you need a doohickey to make yourself work right you need a doohickey seriously this what is, is that in the in the klr realm there's some i i've even seen it i've seen it and i can't remember what it does something about the shift mechanism that breaks I, i've actually had a person show it to me in their garage i went and bought a tire machine in Ty valley oregon last december and I go to to buy this machine because it was cheap. It was a it was a manual machine, so super cheap. And I got to drive through the snow to get there. It was rad. And I get there and there's a KLR, and the guy was one of those KLR guys, which they're just like Guzzi guys. Yes, and they're just they like, are, aren't they? Just like Goldwing. <clears throat> I should say not guys, people. They're not Give like Goldwing guys. They're like Goldwing guys that put car tires on their back wheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like yep. just you're yep. just one standard deviation too far from being considered normal. Yep, absolutely. And this guy had an engine on his bench, and we we had we had to have the st- to talk about the doohickey because I had never actually seen it, and he showed it to me. So anyway, there's he a thing. His doohickey. It's yeah, I got to see this guy's doohickey right out in front of my face. Right, he whipped it out right in front of my face. That's weird. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I would whip my doohickey out to a complete stranger. <laughs> but Sometimes I just met. I I had broken the ice enough. I was I was purchasing something from him, so so it's I transactional. Think, is what yeah, you're it it started to become it's a little already bit more. it's already a little shady. So well, let's just go full. It's time full to get out doohickey. the doohickey. It, the the room wasn't well lit. It wasn't like I was taking pictures. <laughs> <laughs> was there like a shadow? 
That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fucked up. <laughs> can, you, can you show me? Can you show me with your hand about how big the dude oh, Hickey is? Can you can you show me <laughs> where where he can you put, show me on the model motorcycle where he put his doohickey? <laughs> oh man! All right, so I mean, you just t-balled the shit out of that. I, I mean, know, like, I know, there's probably so been people listening to the show just being like, "I wonder when they're going to start talking about dicks." <laughs> it's just that's just where we're going on the uh, show. All right, okay, so it's just one big dick joke. <laughs> I don't know. We're like 30, 40 episodes in now. If people haven't realized by now, this show is like an hour long dick joke. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> well, I'll, I will say this. There was no rotary engine vehicle in his garage. So there was no wankling at <laughs> he was, all. He was two rotors short of a wankle. <laughs> so doohickeys, that's a thing <clears throat> on KLRs and they're, you know, they're, they're just, they're fine. And I watched a really good friend of me follow me and another, like one one friend of mine was on a uh, KTM 690 Adventure or 640, mid-early 2000s rad double headlight single cylinder. Weird looking. Buddy. Very weird looking, but like what you would do uh, Paris to car on, right? With, a, with that at that time. Um, and I was on my XR650L and we went up to... I think it was called Shut Eye Point or Lazy Eye Point or something like this up up in the Sierra Nevadas. Very gnarly granite outcrop riding like through rocks and shit. And my buddy Eric um, Nicolulis rode a box stock KLR650, like I don't know, a recent one, right? With all the fairings and shit, box stock. And it blew my mind where he could take that. I mean, he's a good rider for sure, but it blew my mind how capable a bike was box stock to get to where we got. Uh, this is without the doohickey. With, with no dude, no doohickey at all. all right. right? It was doohickeyless. It was kind of a eunuch of. Uh, <laughs> <it was> a, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder, like, if you like show up to the KLR rally and you don't have a doohickey, everyone's just like, you're, "Oh, he's one of those." He's a eunuch. He's one of those. Guys. He's a pariah. <laughs> All right, so like, does someone grab them and take them aside and be like, "Listen, like, hey, you got to hang seem, out with those ones over there." You seem like a nice guy, but um, <laughs> till you whip it out, we don't really, <laughs> we don't really accept you. All right, so um, yeah, capable bikes for sure. But that's I don't, where, where are we going off on the tangent of of, of this was ridership? A, this was fairly, fairly, fairly good rabbit hole. Yeah, it's well, like a rabbit hole to a rabbit hole. It's like it's almost. I'll say what 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 I wanted to say relative to the Harley thing is. It, it's all about seat height. You get the new people in on small bikes. So is a Honda Grom going to attract new uh, short inseamed riders that happen to be female? Maybe in some ways, but that also is negative in others because it's small and you feel like you're exposed and uh, can't get anywhere and you're on a bike that is only 125 cc's or whatever. I feel right? like you have to take the Grom out of the, the equation because the Groms just seem to just be these fun cute bikes that people are just latching onto. That's one thing I think Honda is just fucking nailed. And I don't know what it is about the Grom, but like when even when I saw it, was it 2013 they came out? I was just like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what it's named Grom for, but damn, that looks like that'd be fun to get groceries, be a pit bike, do mini moto, learn on. Like it just it's perfect. It just kind of tickles the fans. Yep, and Kawasaki is now They're just ripping them off. Right. So that's rad. Good for them. Yeah. But is that the thing that you're going to get new rider now? You're going to get some new riders on them, but really uh, a lot of uh, whether it be female or male that want to get into it that might be smaller, 
they they see a Harley Davidson Sportster and it makes sense to them. And it wouldn't be that bad if you don't know any better. But eventually they get on something else and it's like, oh, wow, that was a really shitty motorcycle. I need something like, that's more capable. Why didn't someone tell me? It's like, yeah. it's like having your fly down all day. Yeah. Like, how did yeah. no one stop me and tell me, like, what was going on? Yeah. But, dude, but my dad has had an 883 for years, and I go home and ride it. And I've, I've again, I've probably said this a hundred times on the podcast. I, I feel bad for the listenership that has to listen to the same old stories again. I enjoy that bike, and I, and I go okay on it, but I get tired of it. You know, you're a parachute. Riding around on a pair, like you're you're the parachute when you're on a bike like that. It's stupid. Well, we we've said this on the show before. It's again Harley Davidson. It's 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 such a big part of the industry, but it's also such a huge outlier. Like it's not about the machines. It's about everything that comes along with the machine. And and when you're Harley Davidson and you set up this kind of this culture that people can tap into, that's that's the allure, and that's what I think victory and and indian to a sense like have just kind of missed the boat on and obviously the japanese manufacturers have completely missed the boat on this but there there is that thing like if you're getting into motorcycles because that's the fad right now and that's the aesthetic and whatever urban hipster chic whatever nonsense like millennial throw every little marketing buzzword in there thing that's going on right now you know, Harley Davidson's going to crush it. You know, they're, they're speaking that language just fluently. So that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me at all when I see people that are really fashion focused and, and on trend and they end up on a Harley Davidson. It's like, of course they are. Of course they are. You know, it's either that or they're, that's the mainstream version or like the super niche version is like, it's a Honda CB350 that's been like just tortured in someone's garage. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Grinder I don't know how tortured. Action. I don't know how tortured you can be. Without a doohickey involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh, if last right, show hey. was the Winkle jokes, I feel like this show is the KLR jokes. It's gonna be the doohickey yeah. jokes. Um, I I've got to bring this up just because we're talking about it, the eighty three. I'm talking about my dad's bike, and this is just a an amusing aside. <clears throat> I wouldn't even call it a rabbit hole. It's an aside. So my dad posted a picture of his helmet with a lot of bugs on it um, onto Facebook. And his caption was of note, and I wanted to share this with the re, uh, listenership because of, uh, I don't know, if you want to get to know me at all, you'd have to understand this. So here's the picture of my dad's helmet, just got bugs all over it. All right, fair enough. And it says, a warm, wet year in central Texas with primary productivity very high, as indicated by the arthropod collision index. So the arthropod collision index is the bugs on his windscreen, right? And just that's my dad saying that. And... Just, it makes me understand you a lot better. Well, that's what I was, I, you know, I wouldn't say that per se, but the fact that he says that is why I say some of the shit that I say sometimes, right? So I, I thought that was an interesting one. The Ar- Arthropod Collision Index. The ACI. <laughs> and that's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bug jokes. What's the DPI on the ACI there? <laughs> so there's that. So I don't know if we should make that a thing. The, a- the ACI should become a thing. How was the ACI this weekend? Oh yeah, it was it's quite oh, buggy, yeah. right? A lot of arthropod collisions. Lots of <laughs> lots of arthropods. <laughs> All right, it's sorry. arthropod season out there. <laughs> well, it, it it is in certain parts, right? <sighs> okay, so there's that. Uh, I don't I don't know with the rest of it. I don't know whether motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, I know. I but I, I don't know with eighty stuff, and, and then it's going to get in the nineties. And there's a lot of people right now I, I see on the sport bike side, on the crotch rocket side. 
that are holding on to the uh, what I think was the halcyon time for them, which was the 90s superbike era which before MotoGP was MotoGP, right? Yeah. Before when it was still 500s and it was almost forgotten. Yes. That in that time there was a real a lot of interest in superbikes and superbikes were rad because there was Honda V4s, Ducati V-twins, Harley Davidson V-twins, um, the the normal onslaught of of uh, the rest of the Japanese Trick ZX7s, Trick uh, Yamahas. It was a really neat thing. Our R7s. There was still some cool stuff and homologation specials, whatever. And that I think you'll you'll start seeing uh, people that at the time couldn't afford the super fancy stuff maybe getting back into it and you're going to see a, a rehash of like 916s like right now if you wanted to go buy a Ducati 916 748 996 whatever they're actually in a fairly they're reasonably priced right 3 to 3 to 7 grand somewhere in there that's a lot of bike a lot of beautiful bike a lot of interesting bike for that but a lot of problematic bike right for sure there's no doubt same on the on the Japanese side I don't know, man. You could probably go buy a YZF750 SP for nothing, and it would be a pretty wicked bike. You still can put modern tires on it. You could go and have a lot of fun and have decent brakes, modern tires, good acceleration, not the best. I mean, we're talking these bikes would get eaten alive by an R6, but it wouldn't matter because you're on a bike with more soul, more feel, more vibe. Uh, no bright, no No ABS, no traction control, nothing, and more analog bike. But that might be the next thing is that people will, will start appreciating those. You're starting to see GSXRs from the from the mid '80s, uh, the original GSXRs. Mm-hmm. Man, they're fetching 1100, money. Yeah, yeah, they're they're for the 750s, 1100s, whatever. They're they're gaining value now. So is that going to be hot like we're talking about with people that can go buy a cheap bike and fix it up and be cool? Maybe not. That is one of the beauties of the cafe racer thing is. The aesthetic lent itself to minimalism and inexpensive, and so that was good. But then it also created some really, really titanically shitty motorcycles, like dangerously bad. Oh, I'm going to put drum brakes on my cafe racer. Yeah, yeah, sure. Great. Piece of shit drum brakes on them just because the aesthetic. You want to make it look cool, not even put, you know, twin leading shoe or that. That's what frustrated me is those bikes that were built so poorly because of that price point, And then nobody's learning about it. They're just kind of doing it for the sake of it. Well, that's the difference, I think, with with the goals that are stated there. Like, I think I think there's definitely builders out there that are just I'm creating I'm creating art. Like it's not even viewed as a mechanical piece anymore. Yeah, sure. This is something that's that's meant to be photographed and put on a pedestal and walked by in a in a bike show. Instagram, and that's, exactly. And it's just it's just out there to exist as this builder art. Whereas then I think there's another subset that are that are more function focused, but function doesn't always sell eyeballs. Let's say. But I do think you're right about the. I'm not quite sure where where in the era it would be, but like the last of the carbureted sport bikes, the last of the carbureted super bikes and 750s, and in that that era, that could be something that's interesting to be the platform for the next, or at least part of the next kind of iteration of this this custom scene. And that's right where I was talking about. Yeah. That's the meat of the late 90s, yeah. and right? they're cheap. They're super cheap. Sure. But and they're but they're easy to work on. It, it still fits that whole like kind of yeah. I'm working with my hands. I'm building something. This isn't like I'm not gonna have to sit down with a computer and and figure out how I'm gonna make this thing work. Or, or, or. and I love it. 
I, that part of for sure there's a part of that endears me to it because I you know there's there's no fun in looking at a black box that you have to replace you you'd rather be able to take that set of carbs completely apart and <clears throat> I don't know. That's strange to think that, but that's what I like. Well, that's an interesting thought. You know, I wonder. I wonder if that's where we're going to kind of peter out on the cycle because there there does seem to be like this tipping point of like, okay, so you want to make a a custom sport bike now. Let's say you're going to take a an R1 and you're going to cafe racer it or whatever. Like, there's definitely guys that are out there doing that, but. There is this kind of thing like, well, you're going to have to keep the ECU and the the IMU and the ABS modulator. Like, you're going to have to keep yep. all this stuff and hide that somewhere because the bike just doesn't run without it. Yeah. Whereas, like, now it's like we're seeing all these old bikes being used because those are bikes that you can easily work on. You don't have to have a special box that plugs into the bike to, to diagnose it and tune it sure. and upload a map, download a map, remap craziness and... You know, some of these can be tuned with a personal computer, but a lot of them are closed system. A lot of them are these proprietary systems sure. that just your SOL as a consumer and your SOL as a builder and your SOL as a hobbyist. That's interesting. I wonder I wonder if that's going to bite us in the ass in like 10, 15 years. It might do, or <clears throat> the adaptation would be not necessarily retrofitting old tech onto them, but th- there will be enough people that have screwed with enough of them to be able to to play with it, right? To, to adjust anything and everything on any given computer. I don't, I'm not too worried about it. And that could be anything from shit. 1998 was the first, uh, fuel injected GSXR 750. I, I remember maybe it was 98 or 99 TLRs, right? TLSs 98 or 99. That was, those were the first big ones when the, when the Japanese went and it didn't take much longer before, Honda started to fuel inject all their sport bikes, right? The F4i, F4i yeah. right? And the, I, I, I'm not remembering it very well, but I'm pretty sure the RC51 was fuel injected, right? Must but have been, because it's the same era. It has to be. I know the v, um, the VTR was not, right? Fuck, maybe it know. was. Not as good on that. That's funny to think, but that's the era. So for most people, they're like carburetors are you kidding me but for me i was going to mmi at the time 96 97 and that we were just starting to learn fuel injection right ducati had been doing it forever bmw had been doing it forever well of course they have to be at the sharp end of it, but the japanese hadn't so is that going to be the next big thing is to have all of those types of bikes uh, maybe and there's going to be less and less of them because more of them are, are parted out and you know go out into the ether of, of being parted out on ebay Maybe that means that the the custom motorcycle landscape is going to have to change because I don't see like the classic custom builder now learning that skill set. I feel like it's they're too late, they're too old. It's too much of a change. It's too much of a, a skill set that's outside of their current core competency. But maybe that's maybe that's where the younger generation of builders comes from because I know a lot of really smart, talented guys that know how to crack into you know, a Ducati ECU or a Honda ECU sure. or a Yamaha ECU and start tinkering around with the settings and the things that you can do inside there. And it's very interesting to watch. And they're all, you know, well, now they're all older, but I was going to say they're all under 30, but, you know, five, 10 years ago, they were all under 30. But it's interesting to watch that. And and there's definitely people that are older that get into it. And obviously on the racing side of it, it's a, it's a whole thing on its own, uh, its own regard. Yeah, but and keep in mind, a lot of that, the it's necessity as a mother in order to make most of these bikes perform, you have to do it. 
for most of a, a most builders, the la- they're not really given a shit, especially with modern sport bike. What are you going to get your R? If you're going to create an R1 cafe racer, mm-hmm. what do you want to make it faster? No, you don't give a shit about that. So breaking it into an ECU to tune it for that doesn't matter. But maybe, I mean, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. But maybe there's an element of like, hey, do I need to have like these 12 boxes on this bike? How do I trick the ECU into yeah, still sure. working without the ABS modulator or the yeah, sure. IMU? Sure. You know, yep. all this other nonsense and this. What was it? What's the Ducati one that the 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 ECU and then the black box? The BBS and the, the BBS and the yeah. an, the engine ECU and the yeah. yeah sure yeah. I mean maybe I don't know. I'd be I'd be very curious to see. It's interesting to watch. It's interesting to to know that we're in this kind of flux of change. We're not at that point where it's like crossing over and the change is obvious, but it's percolating. There's a lot of rad people that do all that stuff for sure, and you can't take any of that away from them. But is that are are they? It seems like a lot of them are cut into this cafe racer-ish aesthetic that's just kind of just can-kicking, right? So to continue on that theme, we actually got a listener question recently um, that that that's kind of ties into what yep. we're discussing today. So yep. I'll just – it wasn't an audio one, so I'll have to read it. Um, it's actually from my, one of my writing buddies down in, in Northern California, uh, Jimmy. And he writes in – I uh, was listening to the show, da 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 da, about the one where the guy came in with a 2014 Honda 700, and uh, he's saying, "I have a 79 CB750 that I rebuilt slash restored. I have shit tons of money in it, and I know I won't get it back, and that's okay. My question to you though is, how do I lessen the blow? In a perfect world, I would just like to trade it in to a dealer and get a Zuma 125 or something similar. He's got too many bikes in the garage already. My guess is the dealer won't give me my won't give me any money on it, but what would you think is realistic? Only reason I ask is in the podcast you mentioned trying to make a deal with a customer to move him into a new bike, and I was thinking maybe I could get my local dealer to do something similar for me. I can't stand the thought of chopping the bike up to get any money out of it. So he's not going to part the bike and wants to sell it. Yeah, and that really is a tough one. With the, the bikes of that age, without any provenance at all, you you can't get any more universal Japanese motorcycle than Explain that. Explain what you mean by provenance. Because I don't know um, if that's a term everyone understands. Interesting, storied, uh, strange engine configuration, character, something different, whether it be European. Like when I say universal Japanese motorcycle, you'll see this in print over the past 20, 30 years very often. UJM, which meant four-cylinder, inline, standard. That was the universal Japanese motorcycle. Talk about the engine. Standard, inline four, yeah. engine, yeah. just all kind of the same. That that would be just one part of it. The rest of it would be all a part of the whole. They'd all look the same. You could cookie cut a UJM just like you could a Harley, right? You can make a cookie cutter of a Harley Davidson and make it pretty much the same, whether it be a Fat Bob or a Big Bob or a Bob's Big Boy double, or double Bob's, whatever. Two Bob's and a do Yeah, exactly. It would be the same. Oh, oh, there's one with the bag. I got five bosses, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the two Bob's. I forgot about the two Bob's. Yeah. All right. So um, that and same goes with the universal Japanese motorcycle, the standard, the GS 1150, the, the CB900F, the Yamaha. Uh, midnight special yeah i mean there's so many they're all just the same thing so that bike is one of them great bike probably works really well I, I can't imagine what he did to it that would be the question is how deep was the the modifications or the or the restoration if it was a perfectly restored bike 
the only p- people that might give you any credence with something like that would be a Honda dealership that knows it and could resell it. But most and, dealerships and knows like some Honda collector. Yeah, that would guy. be it. Yeah. But most Honda dealerships, they're smart enough to know that dealing in old bikes and dude, anything older than ten years is old bikes for most dealerships. So that comes to shocking. But two thousand six, that's a break point for some dealerships to not work on motorcycles because. So you're saying I'm not going to get a trade in on my R1? Yeah. Well, that can be. Yeah, yours. <laughs> same thing. Like, say a track prepped R1. Yeah. That's a worst case scenario. That bike's worth fifteen hundred dollars. You know, as it sits, it's not worth to to a dealership. To a dealership, right? Right. Uh, so also understanding the dynamics it's worth here. about fifteen oh one to a private. Cell. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so they that's a thing that I'll, it's funny how much we have to explain this to people that come in and expect. They've gone online and they've seen KBB retail and they expect the Ducati dealership to pay them KBB retail. Well, any dealership, but yeah. Yeah, but they're they're coming to us and they're you name the Japanese brand. It's usually it's usually people that have Japanese bikes that are doing this to us. They're like, This bike's worth seven grand. I, this KBB says it. I'm like, Well, you're trying to trade it in, and there's a trade in value, and there's a wholesale value. And there's a retail value. And you're trading it in, not retailing it to me. So the trade-in value is what we're going off of here. And the trade-in value is usually 30% less yeah, than, right? It's a lot less. So having to explain that to people is very painful because it's it's tough. They they have a thing that they feel is valuable. And this guy, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, he's realistic. He understands. He's like, I've built this thing. I threw a bunch of money into it. It was worth a lot for me to do that because I got a lot of value out of the build. I don't want the bike anymore because I got that value out of the build. I don't like the bike or I I don't need it or I'm done with it. And then I have to make a decision on how to turn that into something else. That he knows how difficult and shitty it is to sell motorcycles on Craigslist. It's hard. It's hard work. It's painful. It can be. Deal with a lot of weirdos. Right? It can be. If If you don't know how to do it right, it can be really difficult. If you... Uh, well, no matter which way, it's it's still difficult. Even if you if you're a pro, it's still uh, teeth pulling to sell shit on Craigslist. So then you put it on Cycle Trader. Yeah, it's not gonna right. That's that's not or a hot eBay thing. or whatever. Sure, eBay maybe you put them out there but on that's the local the, forum. That's the way you're gonna be able to do it, and you have to spread it far. You have to take a fuck ton of pictures of it and make sure they're very clear and write down all the minutia about everything you've done to everything on the bike. And, and be then prepared you, to trade like 10 emails with each prospective buyer. Exactly. Yeah. And and you, it's work. And and there's no shop that's going to consign that bike for you. Consignment is an option usually. And you, so we would take, say, if you had a good motorcycle for me to consign, a, it, it could be a 2003 Ducati yeah, Superbike, right? And I will give you the number. I will say, all right, I think I might be able to get five grand for this bike. Um, and then I'll take 15% of that. And this is, so this is what you're going to net, or I'll just buy the bike for this mount. And it's usually the Delta is usually about 500 bucks. And frankly, most people are smart enough to realize that, nah, it's probably better for me to just to sell this to this dealership right now, cash in hand, be done with it than to spend the next two or three months waiting while, while they might sell it. Right. And so that's something I usually go off of as a start to have the conversations with people realistically to figure out 
how is it smart to bring the 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 bike to the shop if it's a trade in that's another story as well sometimes it makes it might make more money as a trade in uh because we have incentives to sell the new bike or the frankly even the used bike i might have a bike that i really 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 would like to move off the lot it's been there for a long time uh it's aged inventory and there might be some reason for me to want to move that bike quick so i might take in an older nastier bike right recently i took in a a bmw k75 slash 5 with 40,000 miles on it and i got it cheap and and it's going to be valuable to me to wholesale it to some bmw dealership that was an old bike with a lot of miles but it's a bmw it has a bit of provenance it's an air-cooled uh parallel twin or a fl- sorry flat twin so there's something about that that's way more um endearing than having a you know japanese bike from the same era so for for jimmy no i don't have a good uh, i don't I, I don't have a good um uh, solution for him other than frankly a lot of work beating the bushes locally to sell it or just realize you're gonna have to take if you want to get a zuma 125 you take it to multiple Yamaha dealers and and tell them this is what I have. How much will you give me for it? Clean the shit out of it. Make sure it starts. Make sure all the lights work. Make sure the chain's lubed. Make sure all of the stuff is functional because that's what they're going to evaluate and that's what they're going to pick apart and say there's no value in this bike because of this. And they're going to get the KBB book out and they're going to say, you know, and I don't have that in front of me, this bike's worth, you know, $750 trade in. And you might have to just suck that up and take it. Or you might be able to get fifteen hundred out of it, and in a case of a situation where you can make double what you might from a dealer, I'd say that's well worth it to just spend some time. But that that seven hundred fifty dollars might not be worth your time, right? So that's another way I look at things like that. It's like I would rather take a hit than have to endure the bullshit that I would have to endure, wasting my time that I could be working on other motorcycles or doing podcasts or hiking or whatever, right? So some people don't view their time in the same way um, as as I do. Whereas I'm glad I'll gladly pay somebody to do something yeah. that will take me too much time. There's 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 a good concept in finance called the time value of money, which basically relates back to how much your money can earn over a certain time period. Yeah. But I think there's also the the money value of time where it's like what's your time worth? You know, if this is going to take away an hour away from you doing work, how much money are you going to lose in that, that work? You know, if you make 30 bucks an hour, you just lost 30 bucks. If it took you an hour to deal with yeah. dick holes on the internet, if you are someone that has a limited amount of free time, you know, a very finite amount of free time, what would you be willing to pay to have an extra hour of free time? Well, that's how much your, your time is worth in that regard. Cause, sure. cause it's going to come from something. It's either going to come from work time or it's going to come from free time or it's going to come from sleep. So figure out what your values are on those and that's, and then you know, kind of project how long it's going to take you to, to do that. How many people are going to have to trade emails with? How long are you going to have to sit in the garage polishing the shit out of everything? How much time are you going to take taking those photos? Factor all that in, you know, everyone's, everyone's numbers are different. Everyone's tolerances are different, but uh, I don't think everyone values those things accurately and, and really internalizes that no doubt and it's uh it can be a tough one because i you know some people love the hustle some people oh, yeah. get extract I, i'm one of those people i love the hustle i love a good deal my ideal day is buying a used car <laughs> like i hope that's what i like if i die and go to heaven 
I'm going to end up on a used car lot and every day I'm just going to haggle with someone for, for, for hours. When I bought my forerunner, that was a 12 hour negotiation. It was the best day of my life. Well, <laughs> it's up there. It's like top five. Really? Yeah. That's oh, horrible. I loved it. Loved it. Why? I don't know. I'm, well, I'm fucked up. That's why. Yeah. I want to be done. I will take a hit just to get it. Like, I will be like. Yeah, you're weak. Yeah. You're weak. Right. You're the kind of guy I want to find. You're weak. I'm just going to crush sure. you. Well, I'm like, that, I'm like, I'm like that, that, the Russian guy from Rocky, whatever, five, I must break you. Oh. Yeah, all right. And then I'm all jacked up on steroids. Yeah. Right. So that, so I, I like being Rocky and I don't mind it on the, on the side of, on the other side, I am the person that has to do the haggling. So anyway, I, I would say from my standpoint, I have to be the haggler to, to hold the line and I, I'll let sales go all the time and it, and it that's of note some people don't like that it's like you you have you have potentially one in the bush right now you can take it right that's the, the doohickey worst, in the bush that's the worst idiom one in the bush is worth two in the hand or whatever right, it is yeah. or one sure. in the hand is worth two in the bush you got it two in the bush that doesn't sound right doohickeys two in the bush so the uh for me i'm like no walk them i don't care if this is the price it's it's i, I understand where the price is in the market we have priced it this reason for uh, we've priced it this way for a reason. I have no compunction about just letting it sit and letting it ride. You know what? If they come back next week or two, a month from now, and it's still there, all right, fair enough. Time to haggle. But sometimes you have to be ready for that. You know, so it depends for you and when you got that car and if you're gonna. But hours upon hours upon hours, no, it's very transactionary for me. You come in, make an offer. Okay, that's too low. How about we meet in the middle? Not, you know, that's too low. And that bike's been here for a week. We're not meeting in the middle. That's the price, period. And then they walk, okay? And then a, a day later, somebody hot from somewhere else gets it. And I've watched it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, right? It's just, that's part of the, that's part of the deal, right? So I don't, uh, I hate it. I'm not gonna lie. I hate every aspect of it. I don't like anything to do with it. I don't want anything. If I, I'd rather be going to a grocery store, that box of cereal is three ninety five. I'll pay three ninety five, and I'm done. That's it. Uh, if I go in a motorcycle shop and the price for that bike is ten thousand dollars, I know it's ten thousand dollars. I'm done. No, right. no, for sure. I, I definitely, I definitely get that. I'm not. I've definitely been in enough foreign countries where the prices are all flexible. Yeah. That like it just kind of drives you kind of insane. Where you're just like, you know, I really just want to buy lunch. Like we don't need. I need. I don't need lunch in a conversation. I just want to buy lunch. Yeah. But there's a time, place, and manner for 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 when I want to get my haggle on for sure. Yeah, and that's that's what uh, Jimmy's gonna have to figure out. How much hustle do you want to do? Yeah, and and how much is it worth to you? Because it it's not worth much to anybody else, and that's that's the pitfall of working on old shit and and putting money into old shit. Yeah. That is a huge pitfall that goes to all this cafe racer thing. Whereas if you put in money uh, into a Ducati Sport Classic that you find that's derelict. You might actually have some legitimacy to to be able to to add value to that bike and make money with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it depends on the bike. Yeah, I think I think for Jimmy being based in um, the Northern California area, get on Barf, post it up there. Probably already did that to be honest, but yeah, that's sure. where I would go first. Those are going to be your guys. Yeah, or just um, go down to like your local poetry reading, <laughs> uh, your free trade coffee place, and. Uh, Find uh, someone that's wearing like a hemp shirt <laughs> and um, see how much money they have left in their trust fund. Oh, God. Was that, that went too far. That was like one <laughs> too many, wasn't it? I crossed the line. <laughs> Before you rush to get your kickstand up, we should tease that we're going to do 
a live show because the Tin Enthusiast podcast is almost one year old. Yes. So um, we're hoping to do that here in Portland, probably at Moto Corsa. We haven't set a date yet, but I want to tease it out there just knowing how the the time shift works between when when we record and when these come out. We're going to be approaching it pretty quickly by the time yeah, sure. you hear this. Sure. So, so I would say that last full week we have in October, probably that's when we're going to do it. So TBD, but keep your ears perked. We'll, we'll definitely be promoting it on social media. We'll try and tease it on uh, the coming shows. I will make it a point this week to to get a firm date um, for that event. But okay. yeah, it'll be fun. I think, I mean, I, I think it'll be fun. It could be a disaster. No, we got to try though. We'll, we'll, we'll do at least, I'll do anything at least twice. I think that's a good way to, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At least twice. But it's just, it's just one of those things where like knowing how much I have to edit <laughs> Yeah. Out of these shows. Sure. We might get, we might, it might be our last, our first and our last live show <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. No, yeah, well, we got to try it. I'd say it's all fine. But yeah, if you can come, if you, if you enjoy the show, you lived in the area, or if you're super weird and want to travel out here for it, uh, we'll definitely take you out for drinks if you do that. Yeah, sure. Um, but we, we'd love to see all of our fans there. So that'd be good. And um, you can, there's plenty of motorcycle parking. You can put your kickstand down, leave your bike in, in there, and come on in. And when we're all done, we might can, have to get a live video of everybody getting on all the bikes in the showroom and putting kickstands up. That'd be bring it to you to buy. I mean, for for the one year anniversary, we might as well. Because <laughs> because if we keep this up, I mean, uh, we're just you keep this up, keep kickstands up. That that'd be a good like bumper sticker. Which one? What? Keep it up, kickstands up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Put yeah. it on a shirt. Sell it. Yeah. Good talk. See you out there. Later. Wasn't Han Solo um, put to sleep in carbonite? It was frozen in carbonite. It wasn't put to sleep. It was frozen. Frozen. If you don't get your Star Wars references correct, I'm just going to shut this shit down. This is the last episode. (laughs) It's going to be like the Death Star reactor core after Obi-Wan just... Mm -hmm. Yeah. At least the tractor beams. Carbonite. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine the dorks that are just screaming right now? Screaming. Like, it's neither of that. That's a process of blah, 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 blah. blah. I don't know. See, in the thermal detonator. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, anyway, carb. Lucas's sister. What? Lucas's sister. (laughs) Lucas's sister. And and C3EPO knew about it the whole time. It didn't say anything. He knew. He knew what was going on. I think C3PO's backstory is that he had a rough childhood <laughs> and he saw some shit. He did. And that's what turned him that golden color. Like it's just you see where I'm going. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it was been rough. Like his teenage years were very rough. <laughs> Well, and he, he just he's just he's just at his wits end and that R2D2 asshole just keeps prodding him in the wrong way. Mm. Being a little sassy mm-hmm. little trash can rolling around in the desert. <laughs> sassy trash can. That's a great way to refer to. Got <laughs> <laughs> to cut all this out. Note to self. <laughs> Future Jensen, be sure to edit this show very carefully <laughs> oh jeez it's funny cuz uh, i was <laughs>